Hi, welcome to Who Cares with Melinda. So this is a mini-sode. I record these when either I don't have a guest um, who has introduced a topic or I just want to talk to you about something that I am really into. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a play called The Tragedy of Nero. This play was written anonymously in around 1600, let's say. Um, and this is a play that I have been fascinated by for a long time, and I've spoken about this play to several people, any people who will listen, and that includes you now, so thanks. And um, I want to give you a little bit of background on uh, the tragedy of Nero itself and my relationship to it. So uh, I am an early modern performance uh, and performance history expert. Um, that's my academic expertise, and so a lot of the stuff that I'm interested in may or may not have to do with early modern performance. So, you know, strap in, I guess. So, um, I first read this play, The Tragedy of Nero, in a graduate school class that was basically a, a Shakespeare's contemporaries class. So we read other plays that were historical to the time of Shakespeare, but had nothing to do with Shakespeare. Um, so I first read this play in the class about five years ago, and I was drawn to this really, really hard to describe quality of like um, freneticism to the play. Um, the play has no, um, no really, no structure to speak of, which is not really uncommon in a lot of plays written at that time. It's kind of pastiche, one scene kind of, it follows a chronology, but the scenes are kind of just thrown together. Um, so the characters in the framing of the plot are consistent with other playtexts of the time. And so there's nothing really unique about the way that it's written and nothing really unique about the character archetypes, but but something about it struck me as unlike anything that I've ever read. And at the time, I think I read this, it was uh, 2015. And as I have sort of, as, as history has sort of changed and developed and, and the sort of outcome of, of the American landscape has changed, I've only grown more intrigued by not how this play reflects society, but how this play can reflect, might reflect society without being about society. So the experience of getting to know this play on a new basis in a new context of like, you know, the 2016 to 2020, at the very least American landscape, and I am recording this before the election, but I stand by everything I say, has made me feel more invested, more repulsed, more skeptical, and then eventually more invested again. So I, I can't settle myself on the tragedy of Nero and, and what it is, but that's what makes for interesting theater and basically interesting satire. Um, and it makes me really interested and hopeful to see it on stage someday. So I'm going to talk about satire for a second, because I think satire, of course, is, I think, one of the most important forms of self-expression, uh, of controversy, uh, of politics that we have. I think it's, it's, and it's one of the most protected and I think precious forms of art that we can make. It's a really open vehicle for expression. And at the same time, you know, I, like many people, get kind of exhausted with, um, you know, politics as sort of a canvas for plays that already exist. So whether we update plays and make, you know, the leaders in those plays resemble another leader or whether we sort of put everybody in a suit and tie, um, you know, we sort of, if we sort of crucibleize um, and update um, old plays to, to sort of fit them in with current events, I think sometimes that makes me tired because I think rather than serving as a fresh take, it just serves as a reminder of things that I 
may feel troubled about or unsatisfied with. So it's sort of sometimes I feel like satire can be kind of empty or kind of fruitless, which is a bummer because it's so important. And I don't know if other people feel that way, but you know, I'm just going to talk at you for 20 minutes about how I feel that way sometimes and why I think this play then is like a refreshing standard deviation away. It's a way that we can do current political satire without sort of overlaying our political issues onto existing play texts, right? Um, so by the standards of the early modern play, the tragedy of Nero is indeed a tragedy. This is a text that is devoid of any good intentions, any good relationships, or any good people. You know, it's got a ton of deaths, major and incidental characters, and this tragedy is framed about Nero, um, the Roman emperor, and it ends as as the story of Nero somewhat famously does in, you know, in lore with the city of Roman ashes, citizens dying, property destroyed, the authority divided, and the leader Nero dead by suicide um, in order to essentially deny the centurions, the guards coming for him, the satisfaction of making an arrest. So it's rough stuff. And um, if we are so inclined, we may, you know, if we wish, see parallels in any number of potential situations that have gone on over the years since actual Nero lived or since this play was written. So it has, however, as I said, because I read this in 2015, been a somewhat unexpected development in the passing years since that first read that our collective culture has created more narrative associations to that sociopolitical climate and the title character, if you will, um, that the tragedy of Nero presents. So what this means for me and may also mean for you is that the, the basics of this plot are now potentially really eye-rollingly precious in the sense that some political satire, as I mentioned, can be. Um, so potentially, right, we're, we're walking into um, an opening for this to be really precious and annoying. But let me tell you why I think it's not. Um, so this play, and really quickly, just an overview, right? This is going to be all over the place because it's just me and there's nobody to keep me on a, uh, on a track. Um, so I have to try to keep myself on the track. But so a little further background that can hopefully lead me into explaining why this is still like a crackerjack show. And regardless of how the political political landscape may change in the future, I think we can still return to this again and again as like a fresh take on political satire that is sort of parallel to an issue rather than sort of correspondent to it or mushed together. So this play, in essence, is about an apathetic, ineffectual group of politicians who discuss but never succeed in planning a weekly organized plot to bring a mentally unstable despot to account for crimes, large and small, against his own citizens. Uh, some of these people, these politicians, talk about how they have benefited from this exploitation in the past, so now they don't know how to unstick themselves from it and grow a backbone. Others feel too obliged to their political culture to act in a way that they describe as rash, but is in reality revolutionary. Um, meanwhile, the audience experience is that you're getting to know this leader in question better through scenes in which he's not leading, but boasting and bragging about his many accomplishments, his desire to model himself after gods and leaders of a bygone era, and through his dealings with his unhappy and conniving family members. So, you know, <laughs> you know, um, precious, right? So. A main apprehension that in advocating for this play in this climate is that, you know, again, theater has made many attempts to reflect our own culture back at us through adapting 
mirror up to nature, early modern tragedy, or updating or adapting plays to reflect current issues. So why is this different, you may ask? So I think I've struggled to find the answer to that question. And and, I, and again and again, I think I come back to the, the same answer, which is it gives me a, a, a dreadful sense of joy uh, just seeing all the way all these sad, unjust things are presented. So the text isn't inherently written to give an angle of acceptance. It doesn't condone what is happening or how it is happening. Nero is not moralizing or condoning its plot, but it enjoys and dwells on the villainy of Nero. So it is getting the mileage out of reflecting the bombastic personality of his character. It doesn't um, proselytize against the character's actions, in my opinion. There's no tragic fall, really. There's no humanizing frailty. There's no ironic reversal for Nero. There's no hubris whatsoever. There's just ironic ignorance. He's an unwell man. He's got big dreams. He does bad stuff. He has bad intentions, and his appetites are unending. Not just for his need for power, but like for his need for anything. Recreation, sex, whatever, right? Um, and he just happens at that time to be the most powerful man in Rome. And so his unhealthy appetites and his, his frailties and illnesses are not seen as that. They are indulged whenever he wishes. And within the play, we see that indulgence occurring. So from childhood, this play explains to us, Nero was raised to understand that wealth and ambition meant success. And Nero is now, for better or worse, the most successful and ambitious man in Rome at this time. So therefore, you know, we don't see a lot of humanity to Nero, but we see more humanity than hubris. And what that means is we have a character who we can enjoy seeing never learn from his mistakes because he has no ability to be introspective. And the play is not interested in other characters being very introspective about him either. Instead, we get this beautifully perverse occurrence. Everyone else's dislike and fear of Nero is juxtaposed against how enthusiastic Nero himself is about how great his life is and all the opportunities that being afford that being born into this power and privilege has afforded him. So the audience is actually getting to know Nero through the way that he talks about his enjoyment of his hobbies and his ambitions. And some of the things that he really likes to do are play music. He thinks he's a great musician, greater than Orpheus as he claims, right? The be all end all powerful musician. He thinks he's the best actor that ever existed, um, which his privilege affords him to do a lot. He thinks he's an expert chariot racer. He thinks he's an expert sportsman. He considers himself an historian who wants to write 400 books about the history of Rome. He thinks he's a poet. He thinks he's a singer. He thinks he is everything, and he boasts about everything that he enjoys except leading. He does not see being a leader as his job. Instead, he considers it his destiny and his divine right, but Unlike other tragic leaders that we see in other plays like this, leadership and power are not his passion, you guys. Isn't that awesome? So as an audience member, it's actually like refreshing and not eye-rollingly precious to learn about an antagonist like this early in the play. And we learn about it in typical early modern fashion through a lot of exposition. We learn through what other characters say about him. But then we also have Nero the character exposit about all of the things that he loves. He talks lovingly and longingly about them. He's, he's sensitive in respect to his habits and his hobbies and insensitive as respect to the incredible power and authority he has. 
And better yet, as the audience learns these things this way, we see that Nero is not good at any of the things that he loves to do, but he does them anyway. And the audience might think in this case, right? Oh, a true amateur, right? Like somebody who does it for the love of it, a great follower of his dreams. And, and we might consider those things, that kind of childlike enthusiasm for all these great artistic ventures to be charming. And guess what? It is. When we hear the senators and the advisors to Nero who are beholden to him make fun of his hobbies behind his back, wonder how he can possibly maintain the authority that he has while he's off practicing for the chariot races or performing the lead in a play, when they're the ones who are sustaining that power, we might still begin to wonder what is so very dangerous about this young man? He just wants to be good at the stuff he likes and he's ignoring the things that he doesn't. So what could be so dangerous, right? So this is the way that the play structures itself initially, like the first third. It's really cool. So at the beginning of this, then Nero comes off almost like an early modern clown. He's really boastful. He's really gregarious. We don't see a lot of his ambition. We see the or at least the edges of her kind of dulled by, you know, he's he, the fact that he's obviously not using his working brain cells to like thwart the rebellion that is brewing among his subjects. He's completely oblivious. So his vanity and his misdirected ambition is what's larger than life and his priorities are, are focused on these delusions of grandeur which is ironic to his actual grandeur right so he considers this to be an unbridling of his natural talent and you know he really sees that he compares himself to orpheus you know they ask him how this performance of this play went where he he cast himself as orpheus and he says essentially like oh you know oh, if, if only I had been Orpheus, you know, they tell the story of Orpheus, you know, bending the world with his song. But guess what? Those are just stories. But guess what? One time I was walking along the banks of Tiber and um, I saw a swan and she was um, singing her swan song. But then when she heard me play my lute, she just died because she couldn't compete with me. The man thinks he's a great actor and musician. He casts himself as the like the Pied Piper of the underworld. And the joke is that he thinks he's played Orpheus better than Orpheus played Orpheus. And he has no idea that any everybody else thinks he stinks, right? That's classic. It's harmless fun. Um, so we get these descriptions, these buffoonish descriptions like this. But then they slowly change or they're slowly juxtaposed against other descriptions of the way that his misdirected ambition is actually hurting people. Um, that detail the ways in which his power is abused in the name of this ambition. So there's another scene where Nero's wife, Papia, is, uh, is talking to her secret boyfriend, because of course she has a secret boyfriend. Her secret boyfriend was late to meet her for like a date that they had, and she's afraid that they've been discovered, right? But he says, actually, no, I was at the theater watching your husband's play. And he describes the situation. She says, well, why, why were you late? did they catch you on the way to the theater? And he explains, no, in fact, he was imprisoned in the theater because once everybody sat down, all of the centurions shut the door so that nobody could leave Nero's play and that he kept them there so long that some people were either falling down actually in a faint or actually dead from the stress of being trapped or that the only way to get out was to fake your death or to fake an illness. And that in fact, uh, there were people in the theater that were assaulted um, or who had acts of violence inflicted upon them as the crowd became more and more unruly. And that, you know, he basically needed to find an opportunity to escape as the riots started. 
So in scenes like these, when we're not distracted by Nero telling the story of his own ambition and his own enthusiasm, then in scenes like this, the threat is revealed, or when we're reminded of the threat, at least, you know, it's kind of a funny concept enveloped in this terrible reality. Nero wants an audience, and he has an audience that is ready-made. His desire to live out his dreams supersede his subject's ability to have agency and control over themselves. So when in an effort to escape terrible acting, which is kind of funny, we hear how the situation has become lawless and violent and depraved, it's sobering without being moralizing. Because we realize and we're reminded that the only thing Nero cares about is keeping an audience, not about who the audience is or what they're doing to each other, as long as he can say he performed for them. And based on those two you know, samples of, of monologues from, from the play, we can see also how different his impression is of the event than someone who witnessed its consequences. And this happens many times throughout the play, but the, the interesting thing is it always happens in different ways. And it's reflected by each of Nero's distinct hobbies and traits. So for example, I talked about his 400 books, right? He wants to write a series of books on the entire history of Rome. And he's told by his advisor Cornutus, who just can't help himself, that that might be more books than the general population might be able to read. As soon as Cornutus says that, he's banished. He's banished within 20 lines of his comment in this play for saying that, some people may not be able to read or 400 books. When Nero demands the head of a courtier in anger, his companions are so used to following every order of Nero's that the deed is done and announced within minutes, only for Nero to complain with fleeting regret that cutting out his tongue would have been enough, leaving everybody dumbfounded. Not only that they uh, are now complicit in this act of violence, but that by waiting 30 more seconds, they could have, you know, perhaps prevented this needless death, but they're so complicit that they don't realize the level of their complicity because they're too afraid. So in these scenes, the power of the man is a reflection of his own impulsivity and of everybody's indulgence of it. And the fact that even those who don't agree with him follow his commands without question is a good analog for their own inability to organize effectively to remove him from power. So Nero's unpredictability in this case makes him both a joyous character to watch on stage and listen to when he's talking about himself and an absolute figure of terror at any other time, which is another reason why I think that this makes for excellent parallel satire rather than sort of overlying satire. So towards the end of this play, when Nero truly begins to lose his mind, um, his instability, you know, predictably takes a performative uh, shape to himself at the audience. So this is when the line between who the audience is in the play and what the play is about begin to blur for Nero and therefore for us. When Nero decides suddenly that he has to begin to live up to his title of emperor by expanding his own sense of authority, he doesn't make plans. He instead uses his imagination to think himself into a figurehead of leadership instead of just being a leader. So his idea of what it means to lead a country is warped by this perverse flair for the dramatic for which we already know him. We're, we're, you know, we're in like act four by now. We already know this guy. So an emperor to him is not someone who leads, but someone who commands, doesn't use their strength to build up an infrastructure, but rather to suppress and destroy a society. So if he is now to sort of play the part of the emperor, he will not play it as a fool. He will not play it as a hero. He will not play it as a tragic figure, but as a compelling and omnipotent villain in his own mind. So 
the audience begins to realize that the lines are blurring when Nero starts comparing himself to these legendary characters in literature and mythology. He imagines his anger will, quote, uh, lay desolate cities, kingdoms consume, and root up mankind. He talks about Apollo. He talks about Scamander, who commanded the sun and water. He talks about Priam, the king of Troy. He talks about Pyrrhus of Greece. He talks about Zeus and the thunderbolts. He's building his character based on all of these traits. So he becomes legendary indeed when he actualizes his role. He uses those action verbs to score his character and score his impulses by setting Rome on fire, the whole city. And then he observes, and we, the audience, observe him observing, and he's aware of us looking at him. The destruction of the city and the pain and confusion of the people as they die and the fractious effect it has on the government from a vantage point above the city walls, just like a god, ain't that grand? So the people who suffer at this point, as he's watching and we're watching, actually appeal directly to us, the audience, for help. They call out to the gods for aid, and who is up there listening? Well, Nero. They wonder aloud what they've done to deserve this fate, and the spectator, the audience, knows the answer is for no reason only to maintain and feed Nero's ego and maintain his joy. So in those moments, this chaotic cheerfulness of Nero is set against his hopeless cries of, of the people that he's condemned for his own live entertainment. And that's a really harrowing juxtaposition. We're watching somebody pretend power in human suffering, but he's watching his power being actualized through human suffering. So after all that, you know, some narrative formulas or, or some early modern plays, in fact, might dictate that there would be a degree of obligation or satisfaction in Nero getting a punishment befitting the degree of his crimes, right? Hubris is punished with, with the fall. Um, does he have a hubristic fall? Well, eh, <laughs> kind of. When an order finally goes out to have Nero captured and killed, two Roman guards track him down and they try to warn him, in fact, instead of catch him, of the impending consequences of his actions. So he thinks, you know, they're coming here just to help him, but instead they say, you know, well, actually we're coming to warn you that here's your punishment. You're going to be uh, tortured, you're going to be locked into a, a fork, like your neck is going to be locked in the stocks, you're going to be stripped naked, you're going to be whipped, you're going to be scourged to death. And Nero's like, what? why and he like has this really strange realization of his own mortality at that point where he's he's like he wants to he chooses that moment to philosophize about the nature of death and existence and ponder the fact that he may actually be a living person <laughs> and and the guards basically are like why are you doing this like shouldn't you go and then they leave him but one of them comes back and says like hey they're here and in that moment, Nero says this, O Rome, farewell, farewell you theaters where I, so oft with popular applause and song and action, oh, they come, I die. And then he falls on his sword. So he's not lamenting his actions. He's not reflecting on his flaws. He's not uh, drawing any conclusions about the nature of life and mortality. He wants to say goodbye to his hobbies and then immediately commits suicide rather than facing the consequences for his actions. So what does this mean for me? It may mean something different for you, but I get to talk to you about it, which is, again, an immense pleasure. For me, Nero makes me think of Seinfeld. <laughs> Nero's demise brings to mind the mantra that made that sitcom unique to its particular time and place. 
no hugging, no learning. And I think for me, the total appeal of the tragedy of Nero is similar. The, the play is cynical without being dour. It's dramatic without seeking to raise any deep questions about morality. Uh, it's funny without being lighthearted and it's prescience without being deep. And I urge uh, those of us who are exhausted by the actual landscape we currently uh, uh, abide inside, um, which is, I think, everybody, to seek out a theater like Nero if you're looking for political satire that can stay fresh and stay current and not be exhausting. Um, because what I see this play as ultimately is an, an invitation neither to dwell on the parallels or to ignore them, but just to think and spin on this really dizzy gray line that separates the tragedy of a situation from the absurdity of a situation. Um, so that's, that's, that's that on that, um, on the tragedy of Nero. And I really love this play and know that we collectively as a society are kind of like, you know, into like Shakespeare and stuff. And that's kind of what we know about the early modern. And, and not everybody has to go and seek this out. It ain't everybody's bag. But, you know, I think, I think there are ways that we can use the past to sort of incisively criticize the present and, and speculate on the future without necessarily being precious or needing to sort of re-traumatize ourselves with uh, the currency of, of the, of, of a political landscape or of a given circumstance to do so. And so, you know, I, since theater and art are important to me, and I imagine if you're listening to, to me ramble on about stuff that it may be important to you as well, I think it's always good to consider an alternative to the norm in the way that we create and the way that we reflect. And I'm really happy to be able to share this with you today. So um, thank you for spending time with me. This was Who Cares? And I am Melinda, just doing my best. <laughs>